This is not an industry that's saying, no, we can't do the things that you need us to do. It's an industry that is saying, yeah, we're going to do the things that you need us to do. Hi, I'm Mia Quinn. This is Sustainably Speaking. Today, I'm joined by my colleague Ross Eisenberg, president of America's Plastic Makers. If you don't know him, Ross is a power player known for bringing people together, and he's been really successful at advocating at the state, federal, and global levels to achieve more circular and sustainable solutions. Today, we're going to meet Ross, learn how he defines success, and how he's achieved it. But we're also going to have a little fun, because Ross is an entertaining guy. So... Let's just get right into it. Ross, thanks for coming. Well, thank you for having me. You set the bar pretty high. I'm not sure if I can meet that one. (laughs) We'll see. All right. Well, let's start with a lightning round of questions to give our listeners some background on who you are and have some fun. Okay. Okay. I'll ask a question. You have five seconds tops to answer. Ready? Okay. Where are you from? I'm from South Jersey. Eagles or Phillies? Eagles. (laughs) If you had to eat a cheesesteak every day for the rest of your life or never again, which one? Every day for the rest of my life. If you actually loaded up my social media right now, it's the algorithm has figured out that I will watch every video of people eating cheesesteaks till the end. Eating them? Well, eating them or buying them or making them, mostly eating them. It's, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know why why we got there, but, um, but that is what the algorithm has determined about me. Wow. All right. Um, what's a nickname you've hated? Hey, hey, hey. Um, so this is not a lightning rail, so I apologize. My mom gave me my name. She picked our name specifically so nobody would make nicknames out of them. But you can make nicknames out of Ross. They're just not flattering nicknames, right? Was your mom a teacher? She was. Uh, so my mom, she named me Mia because it was short enough for me to write it easier. <laughs> I feel like your mom is kind of like the same path there. Okay. Favorite subject in school? English. Hmm. Greatest role model. Greatest role model. My dad. Favorite junk food. Cool Ranch Doritos. Mm. Beer or bourbon? Beer. If you could travel back in time, where would you go? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I feel like the Roman Empire would be a pretty interesting time. Most adventurous thing you've ever done? I dove with sharks about a year ago with my 10-year-old, which was (laughs) probably poor judgment on my part as a father. But you're both here. We're both here. Great. What's your hidden talent? So I, um, if you give me, if you play a song that was popular from 1988 to 1994, I will generally know what it is, who sang it, and um, uh, generally what year it was released. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't ask for these, these, these powers. Best concert you've never went to? Best concert I never went to. 1986, uh, Bon Jovi at the Spectrum in Philadelphia. Wish I had gone, was not able to do some of my own mistakes. What'd you do? So um, I guess I was in fourth grade. And if you were in fourth grade or in any grade in South Jersey in 1986, uh, Bon Jovi was the greatest thing ever. My dad, he got tickets and he was going to take me. About a week before the concert, my uh, fourth grade teacher discovered that I had not done 49 consecutive days worth of math homework. What? So in addition to having to spend my spring break doing all pages of uh, or 49 days worth of math homework, 
Uh, I had to miss the concert, so my dad took my brother. Do your math homework. Yeah, do your homework. Who inspires you? Um, other than my parents. Um, I think the people in my line of work that make change uh, inspire me. Um, that's why I got into this, was to actually make a difference. Favorite quote? <laughs> Everybody's got a plan until they're punched in the face. Mike Tyson. <laughs> that's good. Do you think you could win a game show? Well, it depends on the game show, but probably not. Well, let's find out. Okay. <laughs> All right, we're going to get there. But first, let's let's talk a little bit about some of the work you're doing. Tell me about your new job as president of America's Plastic Makers. Sure. Uh, so, so my background um, came out of law school in 2002. Spent five years uh, as a lawyer. Wanted to do anything but be a lawyer after that. Um, got into advocacy, doing environmental and um, and energy policy and, and and lobbying, which then, after a series of other jobs, took me to ACC, where I became uh, our head federal lobbyist. About two months ago, uh, moved over within the organization to lead this, the plastics division, which is a trade association within a trade association, I think is a good way to put it, um, but essentially representing the manufacturers and value chain for plastics. Um, it was an opportunity that was pretty easy to say yes to. This is an incredible industry. It um, it is an industry that's evolving, uh, that is responding to change favorably. This is not an industry that's saying, no, we can't do the things that you need us to do. It's an industry that is saying, yeah, we're going to do the things that you need us to do. If you want more recyclable content, we will make more recyclable content. And if you want us to reduce our emissions, we'll reduce our emissions. And as an advocate and as somebody who wants to be, you know, at the end of my career to say, I made change, this is the industry to do that with and to, and to represent. I'm going to try and make you blush. Let me read off this list of accolades. The Hill's top lobbyists, the Washingtonians, 500 most influential people in Washington, D.C., leading association lobbyists by Association Trends and CEO Update, and you also served as Council on Environmental and Energy with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. So, how do you define success? <laughs> uh, so, particularly as lobbyists, you can define success by getting something positive done or making something negative not happen. That being said, the things that I'm most proud of are, you know, one of my biggest accomplishments actually happened last year when the Senate voted to ratify the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol. That was the it was the agreement to essentially phase down uh, uh, hydrofluorocarbons. So here's here, here's here's sort of the layman's terms of what that was. So we had a whole ozone layer back in the 80s. Um, <clears throat> we entered into a global agreement to essentially phase down CFCs, the hairspray and all that kind of stuff. The chemicals that replaced them were called hydrofluorocarbons. Phenomenal for the ozone layer, healed the ozone layer, terrible for climate. So you, know, you solved a problem and created another problem. So you know, countries got together, said, well, there is, there's more technology out there. We can reduce them, do the same thing again. Let's phase down the hydrofluorocarbons, replace them with other things. We ACC have member companies that make those chemicals. And so you needed a global agreement to actually do that. And in this Congress, ratifying a treaty is close to impossible. Ratifying a, a treaty that deals with an issue like climate change should be pretty much out of the question. But we got it done. We actually got uh, more than two thirds to ratify it in the Senate, which which I think was, you know, among my my accomplishments in my career, you know, at or near the top. That's awesome. You've testified before several congressional committees. What's that like? Like, do, do you feel nervous? <laughs> uh, so the first time I did it. It was at a, um, a congressional hearing in the House on a Clean Water Act issue. I'd, I'd done a lot of air law and 
things of that nature before I did it. I was not a Clean Water Act expert, and it was a Clean Water Act permit that had been vetoed, and then a court overruled it, and the House Resources Committee was looking into it. And I thought, man, I, you know, this is going to be tough. It's my first time. I'm going to you know, stick to the books. I'll be the lawyer. I'll, I'll just kind of you know, play it straight down the middle. I sat down and listened to the opening statements of the other witnesses. The witness to my left brought in a picture of a kid who was naked, and Capitol Police had to come and confiscate it. The person to my right compared um, President Obama to Hugo Chavez, um, right? And it was just, and so, and, and what I realized by the time we were done with the opening statements was I was probably the only person in the room who'd ever read the Clean Water Act, <laughs> let alone knew anything about it. And so once you get comfortable with that uh, and, you know, you make sure that you don't say anything offensive and you tell the truth and if you don't know the answer, you just say, I don't know. So you just have to be persuasive and you have to be honest and you just have to do your best job. Um, so it is stressful, but it's more fun than anything else. It's probably good. Everything you just said there is probably good lessons for life. Like yeah. Anything you're doing. Yeah. When did you realize that sustainability and climate issues were like your niche? I think it was the late 2000s, sort of concurrent with the end of the Bush administration, the beginning of the Obama administration. Um, I was at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and it was a really interesting time. The ground was shifting on us from a policy standpoint on climate for years and years and years. That was changing. We had members leave over the issue of climate. We were being too negative on it and things like that. So we shifted and made sure that we got our members back in and actually were, were aligned with them and were being a little bit more constructive. And the chamber's done a nice job. But as that happened, we threw ourselves right into the middle of the legislative debate over climate change. And, um, and But we had to do it in a constructive way. And at the time, it was... There was a bill on the House side, the Waxman-Markey bill, and there was a bill on the Senate side that Senators ba or Senators Kerry Lieberman and Lindsey Graham were putting together. <laughs> and for better or for worse, because we put ourselves out there, I wound up as the prime negotiator. You get caught up in the idea that, wow, we could actually pull something off here, right? This could actually be meaningful. You get past the theatrics, and when you have to actually start negotiating text, you start to really think it through and 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 figure out what is doable and what's not. And that, that bill never got across the finish line. I don't think we've come nearly as close since then, but that was about the first time that I said, okay, this is an area that is very interesting. There's an urgency to it and a need for leadership um, because there's so much screaming on both sides. And that's where the business community can come in and, and show that leadership. A very significant parallel to, to what we're doing on plastics. It's almost the same the same situation. There's an urgency. And I think people are looking to, to industry to help find a way out of it. Note to my kids. Be the guy that reads all the things. <laughs> How much do you think you know about sustainability? I've got a lot more to learn. Same. But let's do, let's play a little round of sustainability trivia. I'm nervous about this, but we're going to do this. It's going to be great. Which of the following is not a non-renewable resource? Sun, coal, or uranium? So which one is a renewable resource? That would be the sun. Good job. Good job. Ding, ding, ding. What process converts used plastic into its original building blocks to be remade into new plastic? That would be advanced recycling, um, which broadly refers to a number of different technologies. Uh, depolymerization would be the one that, that does that. One of, the toughest, one of the toughest things we have in the advocacy space with respect to advanced recycling is explaining what it really is. I mean, it's actually a suite of technologies, but essentially they all do just that. They take, they take used plastics, they take them back down to their original building blocks, and they turn them into new plastics. And it can be done essentially infinitely, um, which creates the circle. In what U.S. city did recycling start? Uh, 
I'll give you a clue. Do you need a clue? Yeah, that would be great. It was a mill that recycled linen and cotton rags. The paper produced from these materials was sold to printers for use in Bibles and newspapers. Uh, that would be my hometown, Philadelphia. Ding, ding, ding. Good job. Recently, we did a building-themed episode of Sustainably Speaking with Heidi Kujawa. Her company, Bifusion, makes what construction material out of used plastic? Bi-block. Good job. Okay. Well, so it is definitely my turn then. So, um, Mia, I'm going to flip the script on you and ask you some sustainability trivia. Are you ready? Yep. Okay. In the early 2000s, organic waste collection at the curb began in what state? My only guess, because everything begins there, is California. That is the right answer, <laughs> specifically San Francisco, but yes. Okay, so we now know at, what we know, now know as recycling had a different name, especially during World War II when the government had a national campaign using this term. Do you know what that term is? Uh, scrap? Yeah, yeah. Recycling was called salvage or scrapping. All right. Um, what is the most common plastic in circulation? It's got to be PET. Yep. Well, that was fun. Thank you. And um, and really, it the game kind of dovetails into something we work on that's raising awareness, really working on a lot of sustainability efforts. What do you think's missing from the conversation about plastic? That is the question to be asking. Plastics get a bad rap, and I think one of the real challenges we have is that people very easily forget why plastics are in the economy to begin with. In just about every application they're in, they're there for a reason, and it's usually because you can do more with less. And it's not just things like cars, right? The plastic wrapper that goes on your cucumber, that's there for a very good reason. It extends the life of the cucumber. Without it, the life of the cucumber goes down significantly. You've now created more food waste, which leads to more methane uh, emissions. You're going to have to grow more cucumbers, and so you're using more water. Basically, every other environmental metric gets better because you put that plastic wrapper on the cucumber. That's why that wrapper is there. And so we need to figure out an end-of-life solution for that plastic wrap on the cucumber. Um, but let's not forget that that plastic is there for a really, really good reason, and it's usually a sustainable reason. What are your priorities this year? What are you working on, and what are you working to advance? We've got a lot of priorities. First and foremost, and this is escalating in importance almost by the hour, is the global uh, treaty negotiations, global agreement negotiations around um, plastic waste. The UN is currently working to get to a draft final document by the end of 2024 that will essentially establish a binding agreement around reducing plastic pollution. That conversation has become a lot more complicated than I think it started out and has migrated from a conversation around plastic waste to a, a conversation around plastic production and the chemicals that go into plastics, in addition to a conversation about plastic waste. That obviously, you know, there's opportunities and there's challenges in that for us, but, but the most important thing is that we're at the table. Um, we would love to see an agreement get done, but it has to be the right agreement. Um, that has been at or near the top of our, of our issues list. Domestically, we have a variation on that same problem. Our solution uh, to plastic waste is circularity, is closing the loop and making sure that there are no more single-use plastics because they get recycled, um, either through you know, mechanical technologies, advanced technologies, biotechnologies, all of these, these different things out there. The, one of the big challenges we have is, frankly, an infrastructure problem. And the most common complaint that we hear from our members is we would, you know, our biggest challenge to, to scaling up recycling for our own, our own uh, company is getting enough plastic into the system. And so how do we fix that that infrastructure to get more plastic in the system? So that we're collecting more from 
that's out there. And every country is different, right? So um, you look at the U.S., you look at Australia, we've got variations on the same problem. Certainly within the United States, we're prioritizing our advocacy so that we can fix essentially this infrastructure problem and, and, and at the end of the day, increase the recycling rate for, for plastics. Well, that kind of dovetails into my question, which is what do you think needs to happen to bring us closer to a more circular or sustainable solution for plastics? Certainly you need to fix that infrastructure. One of the more one of the things that I think we can control a little bit more than that um, is getting the right policies in place, and uh, and that's that's not an easy thing. It's it's not all that different than climate, which we talked about earlier, in the sense that there are a lot of folks shouting on on either side of it, and there isn't a particularly effective middle. And you need a middle to to solve yeah. this problem. And I'm having a lot of trouble getting traction on the hill, and it's because the people shouting on either side just aren't really willing to to move off their, their, their original positions. That's a challenge. Um, so one of the things that I'm doing is trying to, you know, kind of kind of cut through some of that noise. But we need to be having this conversation now because we don't really have a lot of time. I don't want to be sitting here in 10 years and saying, man, I really wish we, we had done something 10 years ago. Like, we need to solve this now. What do you consider a win? We need to increase the recycling rate. The recycling rate is low right now for plastics. I think we need to show that the solutions that we're putting forward are economical, are effective, uh, and are going to actually move that needle from a recycling rate standpoint. You've got a heavy load that you're lifting, but you're the right person to do it. Cross, we're going to have you back in about a year. I can't wait to hear how things have gone. Of course. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. This was a blast. And to our listeners, thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Let us know what you want to talk about. And hit the follow button so you never miss out on a new episode. I look forward to sustainably speaking with you soon.